in his creation, that the complete fulfillment of his purposes and his plans would take place. And then he prays, or teaches them, give us each day our daily bread. And this is the idea of sufficiency, but sufficiency without excess. So it's just like Israel wandering around in the wilderness, receiving manna, just a day's supply. And what would happen if they tried to store it up for themselves? It wouldn't last. And so they were daily dependent on the Lord's provision for all of their needs. That's what Jesus is encouraging his disciples and encouraging us towards in prayer, that we would pray independence for the Lord to meet that day's needs perfectly and sufficiently. Physical needs, our mental, emotional needs, our spiritual needs, that they would be met that day fully, fully sufficiently, but so exactly that we would have need to go right back to him the next day and pray the same thing. Also take note that this is something that's given. I think this is probably goes without saying, but why not say it anyway? This is given. Give us our daily bread. It's not something we're providing. It's not something we're earning. It's most certainly not something that you or I are deserving of. Give us our daily bread. And why bread? Because it nourishes. And it gives life. But it's not fancy. It's not elaborate. Again, it meets the needs and it meets them sufficiently. Perhaps at times the Lord will give you abundantly beyond what you need. And at other times maybe he will only give you just enough. But that's the, that's the idea behind this, this line. Give us our daily bread. Give us all of our, meet all of our needs for today. And keep us dependent on you for tomorrow's needs tomorrow. Forgive us our sins. We're constantly, constantly in need of confession. Not because Christ's atonement was insufficient, but because it's important for us to acknowledge our guilt. For individual offenses, when we sin against God, it's a reminder of our condition daily, hourly, moment by moment, our continual need for Christ's saving power. Christ died once for all, and yet we need constant reminder of that fact. It creates love. As we confess our sins and ask forgiveness from God the Father, it creates love because we're seeing over and over, Lord, I have sinned, and I have sinned, and I have sinned, and I have sinned again. Forgive me, as you have forgiven me yesterday, and the day before that, and the day before that, and the years and decades before that. This creates Love and joy in the heart of the forgiven, and it magnifies the worth of the forgiver. That God is so gracious and so loving and so infinite in his mercy that we're able to pray day after day after day as we sin and fall short day after day after day. We have an amazing God who is rich in compassion, who is rich in mercy, and who delights to extend love and forgiveness to his children. These are the types of things. As we pray these things, we're reminding ourselves over and over. Maybe reminding ourselves of things that we already knew and have known since we were six years old or whatever. But it's that constant reminder working in to our heart that creates that continual dependence, that continual 
love and amazement for who God is and what he has done and continues to do for us. And finally, I just want to spend a minute addressing the last thing he says here. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And the question I want to just tackle very briefly is why does he use the word for there? Because that seems to imply that God's forgiveness towards us is linked to our forgiveness of others. And of course, we're not earning by any means God's forgiveness. So what does he mean there? Why does he use the word for instead of something else? Well, we forgive according to the example that we have in Christ. Who forgives, as we have said, generously. Who forgives completely. And so forgiveness is modeled perfectly for us. And by forgiving others, we are showing to Christ, but also to ourselves, that that forgiveness which has been so richly bestowed on us is working through us. So forgive us our sins because, you can think of it this way, Lord, forgive my sin against you because I am forgiving others, meaning I have already, I'm showing, I'm seeing in my own heart, my own life, the grace that you're working in me, you're giving me the grace to forgive other people because I have already been forgiven. So Lord, please continue to remind me of that, continue to forgive my sins, continue to look graciously on me. We know that he will. We know that he will. But he's saying to us, pray this way anyway. It would be foolish for us to simply say, well, we know God's going to take care of all those things. And this is what we fall into sometimes. Or at least if you're like me, it is. I know God will continue to work his will. I know that God will continue to be good and rich and loving and merciful. So I don't need to pray for it because it's already going to happen. That's completely the opposite of what we see in these verses. That because we know this is who God is, because we know this is how he works, therefore we should be all the more eager to pray. Yes, Lord, continue to do these things. Continue to be who you are. And then he says this, lead us not into temptation. Simply a prayer for God to not let us stumble into sin. Of course we know that we will never be fully free of sin. God does not tempt us. So Jesus isn't asking for protection against that. He's simply asking that God would spare us from situations where we will be strongly tempted. Tempted beyond our ability to resist. In the power of God's spirit. So this isn't one of those God will never give you more than you can handle types of situations. God regularly is giving us more than we can handle so that it drives us to him. So that's the Lord's Prayer. Again, those are all very, that's a very brief, very um, quick flyover of that. But it's there to give us this picture of these are the types of things that when we engage in prayer, these are what we should be focusing our time on. These are what we should be focusing our attention on. These areas of prayer. Worshiping God for his holiness, his goodness. Recognizing our continual need for him. And then praying that he would be at work in us. To help us forgive others. To help us recognize all that we have in Christ. And to help us live then lives of victory over sin rather than falling into it. So now he moves into the parable in these verses that follow. And I just want to read the beginning again. He says to them, which of you who has a friend? So he's giving them this parable where 
an individual has unexpected company come in and they're not prepared for them. And of course, as you've probably heard, this is a culture that is big on hospitality. And so friends come in unannounced and unexpected or strangers come in. They were expected to provide. They were expected to extend hospitality to these people. And you have an individual here in these pages, in these verses, who is not prepared. And so he goes to a friend's house. And he doesn't go when it's convenient. He goes at midnight and knocks on the door and says, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has just arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot give up. get up and give you anything. Because knocking at midnight on the door is not just going to wake one person. It's going to wake the whole family. They're all in there. There's no separate rooms. There's no... The kids have their own rooms and you know, their own beds or anything like that. This is You wake one person, you're waking them all. And so this friend in desperate need goes over and Jesus says, Which friend, which of you has a friend who if you go with this need, he's going to say, No, I can't help you. The door is already shut. It's midnight. I can't get up without rousing the entire family. We'll never get back to sleep. He says, No, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his impudence, and the ESV, English Standard Version, uses the word impudence here. Uh, if you have New King James or New American Standard, they might say persistence, but that's probably not the meaning of the word that, that Luke is using here. The ESV handles it nicely when it says shameless audacity. This is one of these words that doesn't appear very often in the New Testament. It does appear in places outside of the New Testament, so we kind of have some guesses as to how it's used. Jesus talks about the, the importance of persistence in other places. Right? The parable of the widow, who is praying over and over to the... or, or uh, not praying, but going and, and kind of pestering the judge. Right? Jesus gives them this parable so that they would continue persistently or steadfastly in prayer and not give up. Okay, That's that parable. This parable is something different. So it's probably not a persistence. It's probably not the idea that he's banging over and over at midnight. But it's more the idea that this guy does go at midnight. I think that's probably one of the most key parts in understanding this idea. He's going at a time when, humanly speaking, it is inconvenient. Because he has need. And he's not going to get it anywhere else. There is no market that's open There is no one else that he can go to. There's nowhere else. He has a problem. He needs a solution. And it's not coming from himself. And so he's going to the only place that he's able to go, even though, again, in the cultural norm, it's not at all convenient or proper. This is one of those parables where Jesus doesn't say it here. He'll say it in in the next couple of verses. But this is kind of one of those how much more than kind of parables contrasting the idea that God doesn't act as this friend acts. But if even this friend is able to act in this situation, in such, a, in such and such a way, how much more will God, who is loving and merciful, respond to his children? That's the idea that's, that's at play here. The friend may not want to get up out of bed because he's a friend, He's just going to say, okay, well, you know, we can still be friends, but I'm, you know, this is inconvenient. It's the idea that there is that need that can only be met in this way. 
this, this man is coming with shameless audacity. Yes, he knows he's waking everyone. Yes, he knows he's causing a disruption. But he's desperate. He has nothing else left. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate here. He's bringing out this point. Are we, are we that bold in prayer? Are we bold not to trouble God? I, I doubt, I hope no one thinks that way. I doubt no one thinks that way, that my prayers are bothering God. And certainly God is not someone who has a bedtime God is not someone who, if he gives, he's not maybe not going to have enough for himself. Of course not. We know these things aren't true of God. But are you bold in the sense that you approach God with that desperation for your needs? Because in the U.S., in the West, we tend to be a very proud people when it comes to self-sufficiency. Again, maybe you're not like me, but if you are, I like to be self-sufficient. I like to be able to do things for myself. I like to be able to say, okay, here's a problem. I know that I can fix this problem. And my wife can tell you, we're we're new homeowners just within the last six months. And there's a lot of things that I know are way above my ability to fix. And that frustrates me to no end because I like to have the ability to fix things. But I'm not handy at all. But I can do a lot of other things in other areas. So I've been in ministry for a while and I've been studying and then teaching God's word for a long time. And so, you know, you develop certain skills and certain abilities. Well, it's real easy. Let me tell you, I might not be able to do a whole lot around the house, but it's real easy for me to sit down and say, OK, got to teach the teen tonight. I got to teach the Sunday school class tonight. I could just kind of sit down and all right, I'll just kind of put a little lesson together. And all right, it's no big deal. Right. That's deadly. That is so deadly. To just say, I can do it. I've got it. Don't worry, God. Don't bother yourself. I've got this one. I'm willing to bet that there's not a single person here that doesn't do that in some area. You have to guard your heart against self-sufficiency. So are you so bold in prayers to say, God, I have nothing else Sometimes circumstances drive you there. Sometimes you have to go there. God, there's no way. If this is going to get done, there's no way it's going to happen except for you to come in and fix this, to save me, to rectify or remedy this situation. But there's lots of other areas where we can just kind of do it. And maybe it won't be done perfectly, but we can do it. We can, it's well within our abilities to do. We don't need to go to God with that. We don't need to bother God with that. I've got this one. I've got this totally wrapped up, and this is well within my God-given powers. We can kind of spiritualize it a little bit there. That's what we tend to do. And when you add up all those areas where you feel self-sufficient, where you feel you have in your own power and abilities all that you need to get through that part of the day, and you add them all up together, that takes up an awful lot of our lives. And it's only when we're really desperate, it's only when things are really bad that we run to God with all of our problems. When we run to God with the really big stuff that's clearly outside of our control. Do you pray about the things that you think you can handle on your own?
Do you pray about the things that have nothing to do with you? But I mean by that is, do you pray for the spiritual growth of your church? Do you pray for the spiritual welfare of those around you? Do you pray, essentially, Paul's prayers? If you look at the first chapter or so of each of Paul's epistles, most of Paul's epistles, you can see those prayers. That he's praying for the church. Are you praying those prayers for your church? Kind of getting ahead of myself here, but... All right. He brings out this contrast. Getting back to this parable. I want to get back to this parable. uh, Jesus brings out the contrast between God and this friend. And that's the point that, uh, you know, I kind of should have said this first, but I'll say it. Jesus brings out this contrast that if you ask, it will be given to you. Verses 9 and 10. Let's just read them again. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks it will be opened. Not, you might find it, knocking it might be opened to you. This is, this is certainty. That when you pray, God will hear you. And God will act. And yes, we know God doesn't always act in direct accordance to our prayers and thank the Lord that he does not because we don't always know what we're asking. But there is a certainty there. We have certainty that we will be heard. People in other religions lack this. I don't know how they get by without it. That their performance is what determines how well their God is going to to respond to them. What a horrible way to live. What a horrible way to exist. We have confidence that because, not because of who we are, but because of who God is and because who Jesus Christ is and what he has done, we know that God hears our prayers. We know that he is for us. We know that all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's a promise that you can bank your life on. And it's a promise that so encapsulates this idea of prayer. So he gives us this direct address. He says, all right, here's a parable. Here's a parable with a guy and kind of a crummy friend who doesn't really want to help him out. Well, God's not like that friend. God's better. But now he says this in verses 11 through 13. He says, what father among you? Well, now he's not talking in parable language. He's talking directly to them, personally. And he says, you, even you aren't like this. I love it. Jesus doesn't pull his punches here, right? Let's take a look at verse 11. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Well, who does that? (laughs) Nobody does that. And that's Jesus' point. What kind of a horrible parenting technique would that be? Dad, I'm hungry. Okay, here's a snake. (laughs) That's ridiculous. But Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your father. So again, this is a how much more than kind of statement. If you who are evil, who are sinful, who are impacted by the fall and our judgment and our understanding and our emotions are all impacted and corrupted by sin. So if you who are evil and (laughs) sin riddled 
riddled still with the fall, if you can give good gifts to your children, how much more can your heavenly Father give you what you need perfectly? Give you every single thing, meet every single need perfectly. Maybe not how you want it. No, we already know that. But perfectly. And he says... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And He says, you ask and the Father will give the Holy Spirit. Which means, as we pray, that's the Holy Spirit at work speaking to us and also through us to the Father. The Holy Spirit prays, intercedes on our behalf because we don't know how to pray. But when we engage in prayer, that's what's happening. God is, through his Holy Spirit, working not only to change us, but to change the world around us. This goes right back to that idea. Do you believe that your prayers are effective? Do you believe that praying makes a difference, changes things, that God responds because we're praying? It's easy to believe that while God's... Sovereign, God's in control, God's got all this, we don't have to worry about it, we can just be hands off and not bother praying. If that were the case, Jesus would never go off by himself for hours at a time. So in starting to wrap this up, I want to I just I want to challenge you with this. Hopefully this is a uh, needless challenge because it's already going on, but I so desperately want to challenge you with this. And not just because Pastor Tim is a friend. <laughs> Are you praying for your pastor? And I don't mean just, well, Lord bless Pastor Tim today. Are you praying for your pastor? Are you praying that as he labors over God's word, that God would quicken that study? Are you praying that as he encounters the various difficulties and and speed bumps that come in each and every week, that God would give him wisdom and grace and discernment to handle them. Being in ministry, I'm not a senior pastor. So I I can't say I know exactly the types of things that he's handling, but I've been in ministry a long time and served as an elder for long enough that I... You need to be. If you're not, you need to be praying for your pastor. Praying for, uh, I was talking to AJ, that uh, you have one elder now and you're soon to have another and and hopefully have more in the future. You need to be praying for them now. Pray for your deacons. But there's so much, there's so much that we need to be praying for. And if you're taking it lightly, it's time to stop. Because we are engaged in spiritual warfare. That's why we don't pray. We don't see it. It's invisible. We don't see the problems clearly that are before us. And so we're tempted to just think, well, everything's going pretty well right now, so I've got it. If we think through the things that we see in the pages of Scripture, we will be tempted more and more to push everything else aside and pray. Tempted probably isn't the right word there. We'll be motivated. That's a better word. We will be motivated to set all these other things that matter less aside for the sake of prayer. I've got a couple of quotes. I think I'm going to 
just give you the one. I'll give you, I'll give you two of them. One quote is from a man named Tim Keller. So he wrote a book, Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. And so this is the pastor writing and talking about how in his ministry he gets to a point after he's been ministering for, I think it's about a decade, that he realizes his prayer life needs to improve. He says, after a bout with cancer, uh, he realizes he needs to grow in his prayer life, so he settled on some changes that he was going to make to his prayer life. And he says this, the changes took some time to bear fruit, but after sustaining these practices for about two years, I began to have some breakthroughs. Now that's a potent sentence. This is a pastor who realizes his prayer life needs serious renovation, and so he sets about putting some things into place, and then it takes two years for him to, in his words, see some breakthroughs. The whole reason I bring that up, well, two reasons, I guess. One is that yeah, pastors need help praying too. <laughs> pastors need work on their prayer lives as well. But, but really the point I bring it up is for this. Are you that persistent in prayer? Are you that dedicated to changing your prayer life and deepening your walk with Christ that you would be willing to go two years before you see any improvements in that? Now, I don't know if that's... I don't know if he really saw no improvements in two years. I imagine he saw some, but maybe substantially in the way he was looking for. That's a long time. And so, I, you know, I have to ask myself that. Would I be able to sustain... Two years of faithfully asking for the Lord to, to totally renovate my heart when it comes to prayer. You might have things that you've been praying for for years and it seems like nothing is changing. Nothing is working. Everything's just the same as it was when I started praying for this two years ago. Five years ago. Three decades ago. Do you believe the prayer works. Do you believe that God responds to those prayers? He tells you he does. He doesn't promise you immediate results. He doesn't promise you perfect fixes. Perfect in his eyes, maybe not perfect in ours. Do you believe the things that God tells you about himself in Scripture in such a way that it motivates you to pray, even when it doesn't seem as though anything's happened? I mean, hopefully you experience those times where you pray for something and immediately you see the Lord at work. And then there's other times where it just seems as though it's a dry, long season. Do you give up or do you persist in prayer? Because in the persisting, you are growing. In the persisting, you are being stretched and strengthened. You're becoming more reliant in acknowledging that this is fully out of your hands and fully in God's. I'll just, I'll, I'll uh, the other one is a little longer. I'll simply say it this way. There's a man named J.C. Ryle, also a pastor. And he wrote this great booklet on prayer. And in it he describes the believer who is a believer, who is walking with Jesus Christ, but has a kind of a dry semi-lifeless prayer life. 
And he paints a picture this way, in which he says, a person, a body, cannot exist, cannot live, cannot move without breath. He says, I cannot imagine a body alive without breath. And then later, he goes on to say, I cannot conceive of a Christian alive without prayer. Not to say that those people aren't Christians, but he says, what sense does it make to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he's the Son of God. I believe that he died to free me from sin and death. I believe that he's the sovereign creator of all the universe, and I believe that he is concerned personally for me. But I can't be bothered to pray. I can't find time in my day to pray. I can't maybe even move things aside to have an extended season of prayer. Anyway, I I don't want to beat a dead horse here. But where is that level of importance in your prayer life? Where is your concern at? Maybe it's high. I pray that it's high. But if it's not, then maybe you need to be asking the Lord, Lord, teach me to pray. And not just mechanically. Give me a heart that longs to pray. That longs to bathe my life and the lives of those around me in prayer. So that you're praying for your pastor. You're praying for your elders, your deacons. You're praying for one another. You're praying for the gospel proclamation that goes out from this congregation through ministry, through individual life, and just simply sharing the gospel with those around you? Are you praying for these things in a way that is desperate and that says, not by my might or by my power, but by God's Spirit? That's what we're called to. That's what the disciples are seeking. And that's what we're given so richly in the pages of Scripture. God answers prayer. God moves through prayer and changes and molds us through prayer. We have no business taking it lightly. My prayer is that to the extent, perhaps your prayer life is strong, so pray it grows stronger then. Perhaps it's weak or non-existent, well commit. What are you willing to commit to? To pray that the Lord would help your prayer life. I encourage you not to not to wait on it. If you're sitting there and saying, my prayer life desperately needs help, well then you know what you ought to be doing tonight. Cancel plans? Yeah, if you have to. That's the question. How seriously are you ready to take this? And again, maybe your prayer life is great. I don't doubt that there's some of you that have way better prayer lives than I do. Are you willing to pray that it grows stronger still? Let's ask the Lord. Father, we can't do this without you. We're wholly reliant on you to be at work in our hearts, to continue to shape us, to continue to mold us, to show us the depth of our need for you every single day in the areas that are plainly beyond our power and in the areas where we think we've got everything firmly under control. Lord, show us our dependency. Keep on our hearts a desire to bow before you and relinquish every area of our lives to you. Give us motivation to be praying the prayers of Scripture for each other, for ourselves. And may you be honored and glorified because there is no one like you.
There is no God like you. And you deserve all our praise, all of our worship. Help us, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.